We're almost done with the book of Haggai now, and today the sermon is entitled, The Centrality of God. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn from me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree with the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. From But from this day on, I will bless you. You may be seated. I'll give you some context here. From last week's sermon to this week, about two months have passed. So God seems to be working in two-month intervals here. Uh, two months prior to last week's sermon, God spoke, spoke last week, and then now again this week, another two months. And He gives His people another word in verse 10 of today's text. The Word of God is a rare and precious commodity. Not just today, but in those days as well. If you read the book of 1 Samuel, there is a passage that actually says that the Word of God was very rare in those days. And it just became more rare as Israel delved into apostasy. We do not hear the Word of God audibly very often anymore. In fact, I I haven't met anyone who has. 
The Word of God is immensely rare. And we would say that the Word of God as preserved in the Bible is more precious than the finest gold. Amen? It's precious. Every word that comes out from the mouth of God is invaluable. If you want evidence for that, just look at people who've been Bible-starved suddenly receive a box of Bibles, underground churches in Asia, how they embrace those Bibles is overwhelming. Because they recognize that this book is God's Word. With all their might, they receive a copy of that Bible and they cling on to it with tears because there is no book that is more precious than the Bible. Sometimes we forget that living here in North America. If you think about it, scarcity often dictates value. Combine scarcity with a prolific author and what you have then is the value of anything that he or she has written. If you find today a letter by Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Virginia Woolf, if you find any of those happening to be in your attic somewhere, I guarantee that you've just discovered not only something that is valuable, but probably a museum piece. How much more the Word of God? From the mouth of God Himself, preserved from a, for us in a sacred text called the Bible. Everything from the pathway to heaven to guidance for earthly life are detailed in this most precious book. And when God saves you to see the tremendous value of Christ, He also opens your eyes to see the immense value of His Word. Almost simultaneous with justification comes the eye-opening experience of being able to see the sanctity of God's Word. When before you treated the Word of God as a joke, now this becomes the most precious book in the world for you. Your eyes are now open, and you no longer see this as another piece of ancient literature. Now you see it for what it is, the very words of Almighty God, and you tremble whenever you read the text. It becomes your daily bread. We all believe that the Bible is valuable because we believe that God Himself is of infinite value, the very author of the book. We all speak about the value of the Bible, but let me ask you a quick question. If someone were to offer you $5 million in cash today, tax-free, if you promised in return to never read the Bible again for the rest of your earthly life, would you do it? Five million dollars, cold cash, no tax, yours, if you promise never to open a Bible for the rest of your life. My hope is that you would say no. I hope not. You wouldn't trade your 
your arm, your leg for $5 million, you wouldn't trade the Word of God for $5 million. You would cry out and you would say, no, this is my daily bread. I would not trade this in. And if we won't trade it in for $5 million, the question then is, how come we're not consuming it? What's the point of having a book that is worth so much to us if we rarely read it? Talking about how precious the Bible is, is very different from actually studying the Bible. They're two different things. And when we come to Haggai here, I don't believe that the Lord spoke and the people responded indifferently. You see, after 18 years of inactivity, all of a sudden the people began working on the temple of God at the Word of God, and now the Word of God is coming with somewhat regularity. Almost it will seem as if every two months, Haggai is coming and saying something to them. I don't believe, however, because of this seemingly regular activity that the people of God all of a sudden became indifferent to the Word of God. And the reason why I don't believe that is because when we read this text, it shows that the people of God were stirred by the Spirit of God to work on the temple. And so I don't believe what followed was a cavalier or indifferent attitude towards God's Word. These people valued every drop of, 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 of every word that came from the mouth of God. And then when we go into Haggai, we see something very interesting. And it could be very perplexing as well, because if we read verses 10 to 19, there's talk of holy meat and dead bodies, and all of this could sound very confusing to the average Christian. You can read this text and go, what is he talking about? And what I don't want you to do is just because a text is difficult to just bypass it as if it was some piece of garbage on the street. Again, every word that comes from the mouth of God is more precious than gold. In fact, the book itself ends with a divine curse upon anyone who either takes away or adds to this sacred text. It is precious. God speaks and the universe comes into being. God speaks and dead people come to life. Augustine, many years ago, once said, Christ is not valued at all unless He is valued above all. Christ is not valued at all unless He is valued above all. Well, that's odd. Couldn't a person value Christ and other things as well? Why does Christ have to be valued above all in order to be valued at all? I want you to think about that statement for a moment. What what does that mean? What does it mean?
I think you can, uh, can figure out what it means. We can, we can figure out what it means. The problem is not figuring out what it means. The problem is actually believing it to be true. We live in America, and in America, materialism, comfort, status, prestige, relationships, like many other places in the world, serve to numb statements like these. In America, we tend to believe that we could have the American dream and Jesus too. And although Jesus told us that the cares of this world and the riches of this world and uh, all of these things serve to choke the gospel right out of us, many of us still find ourselves running to these very things, thinking that we could love Jesus and the world at the same time. Many of us don't really know what radical discipleship looked like, and so we call it radical when it's nothing more than biblical New Testament Christianity. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying all of this because I think at the end, and I'll show you at the end of this sermon, that what we could end up doing is we could end up hearing a text like today and just forgetting about it without letting it really hit us. Because it's sort of like, I, I was writing this and I thought to myself, it's, people could sit there thinking, well, here, yeah, that's Pastor Stephen every week. He, he's, every week he's saying, um, you know, supremacy of Christ, laid it all out, you know, it's not about the American dream, following Christ and taking up your cross. So yeah, 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 yeah. And then sort of it's like, okay, we become numb to it. We don't do any of it but we just hear the hymn out every single week. And uh, I don't want us to be there. It, it, it would be a complete farce if that's where we end up at the end of this message. And by tomorrow, you're just back in the same things all over again. Let me explain to you what Augustine meant by that statement. What Augustine meant was simply this. If you do not love Jesus above everyone and everything else in your life, then you are not saved. That's what Augustine was saying. Another way, lukewarm Christianity is no Christianity. A Sunday Christian is not a Christian. If Jesus is not first in your life, then Jesus is not in your life. Those are all different ways to say what Augustine said with that statement. Oh, what to God, I could shake some of you up and help you realize that just coming into church on a Sunday and saying you believe in Jesus is not what it means to be saved. This is not what it means to be saved. There are many different ways to say what Augustine has said, but I think I could encapsulate all of it in today's main point. True salvation is loving Jesus above all. That's the main point.
True salvation is loving Jesus above all. And here's how the Bible puts it. I'll give you two verses, or, or, or two new, and I'll give you one Old Testament text. Matthew 22, 37-38. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. It's another way of saying what Augustine said. Jesus above everything, or else you don't get Jesus at all. Jesus will not be second to anyone. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And if I'm not mistaken here, Jesus says this right after the disciples come looking for him because the crowds were getting so huge. It's as if Jesus just really thinned the herd with this one statement. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his own life. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Which, by the way, should inform our engagement with Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, whatever ism is out there, including atheism. It's not, we, we ought to be loving and kind and gentle, but not for a moment should we accept other religions as valid pathways to God. Never. We, we stand firmly and say things against the grain of the world, unpopular things like, if Muhammad Ali died as a Muslim, he is in hell today. That is a scary thought. If you put yourself in Muhammad Ali's shoes just nine days ago, it was a lie. Today, he spent his ninth day continuing for eternity in hell. If he died a Muslim. Exodus 23. There is no Allah. There is no Muhammad. I am the Lord. This is why missions exist. Missions exist because Exodus 23 is being broken all over the world as we speak today. Temples are filled. Sacrifices are made. All across the world. And God is saying, go out and proclaim the gospel because I am zealous for my glory. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a command not just for Christians, but for every single human being on this planet whom God has made and bears the image of God. All of them are mine. They all bear my image. And I am jealous for my glory. Now the last verse right there reminds you of something because Exodus 23 comes after God unleashes ten plagues, splits the Red Sea, and and after He does all that, you would think Israel got it. I'll be honest with you, if I saw the Red Sea splitting, if I saw the ten plagues being unleashed, if I saw manna falling in the wilderness, food falling out of sky, I I would... 
I, I would say, God, that's enough. You just give me one of those miracles. I worship you forever. But these people's hearts were hardened time and time again. And uh, Exodus is the book in which we see the account of the golden calf. God brings His people with a mighty hand out of Egypt, splitting the Red Sea. And not too long after, one of their very own, Moses' own brother, goes and makes a, an idol for them to worship. And they say, this is your God that has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they, text says, they play and worship before the idol. And before you sit there and go, well, you know what? <laughs> okay, I get that. That's, that's cool because... I'm not going to go home tonight and make an idol and bow down to it. All right? Uh, you don't have to worry about me, Pastor Stephen. There are no golden Buddha statues or golden cat statues, uh, you know, that does this. I don't have any of those at my house. You don't have to worry about me. Um, I'm not going to worship an idol tonight. And, and I'm just t- asking you to bear with me here because... What Haggai is going to show us is that just because there isn't a statue in your home doesn't mean there is no idolatry. Uh, In fact, I, I said this in the first sermon in Haggai, Haggai's time is very similar to ours because... Um, unlike the, the majority of Israelite history, by the time you get to the minor prophets, there's one distinct difference. Do you know what that is? God had burned idolatry out of His people. After 70 years of Babylonian exile, Israel comes back, and what you don't see anymore are statues of wood, gold, and silver. You don't see idolatry, at least in that form. When you read the New Testament, do you ever see Jesus saying, put those idols away? No. By the time you get to the New Testament, by the time of the minor prophets onward, Jesus is battling Pharisees. There's a a complete wipeout of wood, stone, and gold idols. Like I said, just because there aren't any statues in the home doesn't mean there aren't idols. Haggai's time is very similar to ours. There were idols of personal business ahead of God. That's what Haggai chapter 1 is all about. Idols of studying in front of God, family ahead of God, comfort ahead of God, economic prosperity ahead of God. You look at the election. A lot of people don't really vote for whether or not a candidate will ban abortion or try to end homosexuality. A lot of people vote for the candidate who has the best economic policies. You better believe we live in a nation that puts money in front of God. Yet the definition of an idol is not so much a statue. What's an idol? An idol is anyone or anything you put at par with God. Oh, I don't put him ahead of God. No, an idol is anything you put at par with God. And that's the point in Augustine's quote. Jesus will not be second or at par with anyone or anything. He must be first. 
And this is not some mental intellectual, intellectual prioritization in your brain. Your desire for Jesus must be above all your other desires. There are practical ways to do it. You think about things that you really enjoy. Sporting events you enjoy watching. Let me just ask you a practical question. I asked myself that the other night. NBA Finals were on. Friday night Bible study was on. And I'm thinking to myself, God, where's my desire? I'm just being honest. You put anyone or anything at par with God, that's an idol. Now, very practical ways to do this. Every day, Calvin says, our hearts are idol-making factories. And this is precisely the reason why God spews the lukewarm out of His mouth. In order for you to be truly saved, Jesus must be Lord of your life, and in order for Him to be Lord in your life, He must be first in your life. This means that He must be the summit, the peak, the apex of all your desires. You should be able to say, God, strip away everything that I hold dear and just give me Yourself and I'll be good. That's what salvation is. Or let me put it this way. Biblically speaking, it sounds like this. Habakkuk chapter 3. This is what salvation looks like. Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. No one can take away my joy, because my joy is founded in God. That's what salvation looks like. Obviously, you could take away vines and fruit and blossoms and put in, uh, instead of olives, you could put in modern day things of relationships and money and finances and economic stability. The, the, the point is the same. God, take away all of these things. The bank account could say zero, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And oftentimes, the greatest test for us comes when all of His gifts are stripped away from us. For then, idolatry is revealed, and then we are forced to ask ourselves whether or not our full sufficiency is in God alone. Where are you spiritually this morning? Where do you find your identity and sufficiency? If God took away your job or your child, your wife or your relational partner, if God took away those things, would you still find joy in the God of your salvation? And one day, do you know that God will take all those things away? It's called death. Knowing that death is coming, how are you living? Are you finding your full identity in Christ? And I want to say this, as we progress in the sermon, I want to make the point, God loves you too much to allow you to remain in your idolatry. He'll strip it away. God will take drastic measures to pull you out for Himself. I was reading the testimony of an Olympic track athlete. 
who suffered an injury and afterwards she said that God used that injury to bring her to hurt himself because she had made track and field her idol. It takes a lot for an Olympic athlete to say that. Principle number one, the greatest threats to a vibrant relationship with God are God's gifts. The greatest threat, threats, plural, to a vibrant relationship with God are God's gifts. And here's what I mean by that. The greatest threats to our spiritualities are often not drugs, pornography, or other illicit items. I think at a certain Christian maturity level, we're able to, by God's grace, avoid those things. Uh, I don't think, to my knowledge, any one of you are drug addicts. Um, Instead, the greatest threats are often God's good gifts. Things like houses and children, cars, friends, and food. These are often the greatest threats to a healthy and vibrant relationship with God. I want you to listen to me carefully. The point of all of these good gifts was that, the point is that these things ought to all point to God. It should make you hunger more for God. These are not meant to be ends, but the means. The good gifts are the means by which God continually pulls us to Himself. But oftentimes, we end up worshipping the gifts over the giver. And instead of hungering for God, we end up satisfied in His gifts. Every time we eat a good meal, we ought to say, Wow, God, that was amazing. But you know what? That just reminded me. I want more of you. Because this meal does not satisfy me in the way that you will, O God. Many of us don't do that. What do we do? We think about how good the food was and we sort of stop there, don't we? And we even go further and we say, because that food was so good, I will work harder, earn more money, so I could eat at that restaurant again. And so instead, we begin to live for the gifts. And this is deadly because this is exactly where Israel was during the time of apostasy prior to building the rebuilding of God's house. Here's how God says it in Haggai 1.9. You looked for much and behold it came to little. And when you brought it home I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. There is a priority problem. The people put themselves in front of God. Are you primarily concerned with your own house above the house of God? Are you primarily concerned with your own family above the family of God? Are you primarily concerned with your own business above the business of God? I remember when Jesus was 12 years old and uh, He was left in the temple. Mother and father worried, eventually found Him. 
And she asked him, son, did you not know that your father and I were looking for you? And Jesus' response was just classic. Did you not know that I need to be about my father's business? Do you care more about your father's business than you care about your own business? This is an important word, but it's a difficult word because if we're honest with ourselves, every day we go out into this world, we have a natural tendency to be like the people of Haggai's time. God loves you too much to allow you to go on like that for too long without any form of divine intervention. He's principle number two. Make God Christ the center of your spirituality. God is far more concerned with your heart than He is about your work. Make Christ the center of your spirituality. God is far more concerned with your heart than He is about your work. People are not that way. People are not that way. People care more about the product than they are about the heart that went into making the product, correct? I could care less about uh, the tailor's heart when making a suit as long as I'm comfortable with the final product. The quality is good. Who cares about his heart? Right, We're, We are that way. Even, even with athletics, uh, people care very little about what the athlete is going through as long as they're winning. We all are wired in a way that we care more about the final product than we are about the heart that went into manufacturing the product. God is not that way. Yes, God cares about the excellence of production, but He cares far more about the heart motivation that went into its production. Pharisees were very good at producing. Jesus accepted none of it, however, because their heart was very far from God. Verses 11 through 13 could leave you asking yourself, why is God asking these questions? Look at those verses. When you read it, you probably thought, why is God asking this? Particularly if you haven't read the Old Testament or it's been a while since you read the Old Testament, this could leave you very confused. So let's get these verses up there. 11 onwards. So the Lord comes and asks the priests a question. The priests are scholars of the law and they know how to answer these questions. First question, question number one. Someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment. Okay, so let's say you take a piece of holy meat, put it right there in the fold of your garment. Okay, and with his garment, he touches with, with his fold, bread, stew, or wine, or oil, any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said no. So in other words, okay, so I have holy meat in the fold of my garment, take the holy meat off, put the holy meat here, and with this fold right here, I now touch oil, or stew, or uh, bread, um, or any other kind of food, does this food now become holy? And the priest says no. Okay? Now let's continue. Then Haggai said, if someone comes in contact with, uh, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. So in other words, if I touch a dead body, and then I go and touch you, what the priests are saying is, now you become unclean. 
Wait a minute, that's weird, that's weird, because you just told me that if you have holy meat, you put the holy meat down, and with this you touch other things, this doesn't make the other things clean, but if you touch a dead body, and then you touch something else, it becomes unclean. Why the double standard? But that's exactly what he's saying there. And the question is, why are the offerings of Israel unclean to God? That's the big question that Haggai is getting at with all of these rhetorical questions. Um, Israel, prior to the rebuilding of the temple, were offering sacrifices to God, and God would not accept it. And Haggai is answering the people's burning question. Why, O God, are you not accepting our sacrifices? And Haggai is about to answer. So this is a big question. But he doesn't do it straight up. He goes, he asks two rhetorical questions and then makes a very biblical point in order to do this. Alright? So question number one. Why is it that when you have a fold, holy meat in the fold, put the holy meat down, touch another garment with the fold, why does that not transfer the holiness of the meat to that item that the garment touched? That's question number one. Okay? First of all, does that even happen in the Old Testament? And where do we get this from? Leviticus chapter 6, verses 24 to 27, is where we get this principle. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place shall it be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. So even the cleaning of the garment has to be done in a holy area. But the point there is that any, of, any garment that, or anything for that matter, that this, this holy meat touches becomes holy. However, if you have an intermediary, the intermediary does not transfer holiness. Evidently, when the fold of the garment touches holy meat, the fold of the garment becomes holy because of the meat. But the fold of the garment, when it touches bread, stew, and wine, or some other kind of food, the food item does not in turn become holy. Why? That's a good question. Because if if you just told me that this holy meat touched my garment, and now because of the holy meat, now my garment is holy, shouldn't then this garment transfer holiness to other items? Uh, Holy, holy, holy. Isn't that the way it works? If the garment is now holy, shouldn't the garment also transfer the holiness? And what God is saying is, no, it doesn't work that way. The garment is holy because of the meat, but the holy meat is what transfers holiness. If you touch another item with your garment, it will not become holy because it did not by itself touch the holy meat. The intermediary does not transfer holiness. Here's a direct New Testament principle for this. 
one that we all know. No one is saved by knowing someone who knows Jesus. Your mother, your father could be the best Christians in the world, but that will not save you. Only by direct contact with the Redeemer Jesus Christ, yourself, will you be made holy. Only by direct contact with Christ will you have salvation. The in-between, yeah, he or she is going to heaven because they've contacted Christ themselves, will not, however, save you. You yourself must have direct contact with Jesus. You must personally believe in Jesus as your Lord, God, and Savior. You cannot have any degrees of separation between you and Christ. Now, let's go to verse 13. So we go to Haggai then, asking the question of uncleanness. We just asked about holiness, now let's talk about uncleanness. The priest answered and said, uh, in reference to the question, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest says, it does become unclean. Where do they get that from? Numbers 19.11. Here's what it says in Numbers 19.11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Okay? Ritualistic mosaic law. You touch a dead body, you go to a funeral, you will be unclean seven days. However, unlike holiness, uncleanness could be transmitted by the intermediary. Listen, watch this. Numbers 19.22. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So you touch that, and then someone else touches what you touch, and now they also become unclean as well. So unlike holiness, uncleanness is transferable by intermediaries. Until it spreads and defiles the whole camp. Which is why if you were unclean, you were separated For the full seven days. Here's God's point in Haggai chapter 2.13. Everything that an unclean person touches is made unclean. So if I'm unclean and I go touch the bread, the wine, and the stew, the bread, wine, and the stew themselves, although they never made contact with a dead corpse, becomes unclean because I touched it. Someone who is made unclean by touching a dead body, that uncleanness is then transmitted by the unclean person to everything he touches. Now what's God's point with all of this? When the people of Israel first came back from exile, 18 years prior to this uh, questioning here, one of the first things they did was they set up an altar. They saw the ruins and they said, okay, there's no temple. Let's build an altar. We're, we're, we're not, our heart's not in it to build a, to rebuild a temple. Let's at least just build an altar. And so they built an altar before God and that's where they sacrificed. Now, go to verse 14. What does it say? What does it say in verse 14? What they offer there is unclean. 
what they offer there. Where is there? Where is there? There's no temple. So where are they offering? What they offer there is unclean. Well, here's the thing. I just told you. There was an altar that they built where they were doing sacrifices prior to the rebuilding of the temple and what they offer there is unclean. Why is it unclean? Evidently, although they thought that the altar would make their sacrifices clean, in God's view, the sacrifices of the people were all unclean because God's house lay in ruins. Their hearts were not right. There was no centrality of God in their lives. They gave God a leftover altar. And because there was no centrality of God, whatever they sacrificed at the altar was not being accepted by God. And this went on for about two decades. Yes, they sacrificed to God, but but God was not supreme, He was not center in their lives, and hence God would not accept their sacrifices. Here's an application for all of us here today. Listen closely. Don't ever think about giving God your leftovers. You might as well not give God anything at that point. He won't accept it. If Christ is not the very center of your life, if you are not giving God your best, and only you know, because I, as human beings, we, we look at out, outward appearances, and yes, they do say things, but they don't say everything, right? Some of the most richest people I know dress very poorly and drive very poor cars. And some of the most poorest people I know wear the most expensive clothes. We live in a strange world, and it kind of works that way. But with God, you can't fool God. If you're not giving God your best, you could fool everybody else. You could even be in church here today. But if God is not the very center of your life, then all the works of your hands, all the sacrifices of your offerings that you're making in God's house here today, as you're worshiping Him is not accepted before God. Why? Because as Augustine said, unless Christ is valued above all, He is not valued at all. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't even think about coming here and giving me your leftovers. But it's a shiny altar, God. We made it out of gold for you. Don't give me your leftovers. Rebuild my house. Give me your best. God will not be mocked. Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We could be singing songs and listening to a sermon and the Lord could be outright displeased with us. Why? Because of the condition of our hearts. If we have made, not made Christ first, then everything we do will not matter. Because in Christianity, what we do with our hands must always be guided by a supreme love for God within our hearts. 
If what we do is not driven by our love for God, none of it will matter. None of it. Your attendance here means much if your heart is right with God. Your attendance here means nothing if your heart is not right with God. Moving on to principle number three. Now this is a scary principle, but it's true. And it's right from today's text. Because of God's love for you, Christians will not be allowed to enjoy anything or anyone more than God. God's love for the Christian will invoke His discipline upon the Christian. Let that sink in a little bit. Because this you won't hear from many pulpits. I guarantee you that. This one's tough. Because of God's love for you, Christians will not be allowed to enjoy anything any or anyone more than God. He will invoke His discipline upon the Christian. Unbelievers, God will allow to have buildings and towers, riches, comfort, pleasure of all different forms. Because their damnation is coming. In fact, He does that to harden their hearts. You should never envy the wicked and their prosperity. David the king warns us. But if you're a Christian, I guarantee you, and you put anything on par with God, He will strip that from you. Whether it's a business, your health, or your child, He will do it. This is the scary part of today's lesson. I want you to listen to this text very carefully. In verse 15, God encourages the Israelites to remember what life was like before the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, if I could give the book of Haggai a title, a one word, uh, or or just not a one word, but a, a, a short title, it would be Consider Your Ways. Consider Your Ways. Haggai again and again tells people, think about your life. Think about what's happening. Don't be blind. See causation. See correlation. Why are things happening in your life? Think about these things so you could change. Consider your ways. And in verse 15, God encourages the Israelites to remember what life was like before they put God first. And in verse 16, what do we see? We see in verse 16 that there was economic hardship. There was economic hardship in those days. And then what do we see in verse 17? We see God, I, God taking personal responsibility for striking or causing devastation upon the people of Israel. Gasp! How in the world could a loving God do that to His people? And right away, the reason why this text is not often, and a lot of other texts in the Bible are not preached from many pulpits, is because a lot of people will read a text like this, well, if God is like that, I refuse to serve God, and just walk away. I struck you. Who's I? Who struck you? God. And that's hard for a lot of people.
how is a loving God striking His people? And I would say, because discipline is love. I want you to look at verse 16. Once you came to a heap, a heap of what? A heap of barley. Uh, it's, it's like the, the backbone of, of Israelite agriculture. When you came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. It's as if God is saying, you know what? You're going to worship me half-heartedly. You're going to come into this lukewarm. I'm going to make you enjoy only half of your labors. I'm going to blow away the other half. Why did God strike them with hail, blight, and mildew? Why did God diminish their crops and their wine? I want you to understand this because this is so lost. I think a large part of it is due to the, the excesses of the prosperity gospel, so, um, which is bad. It's a false gospel. But we've sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater because now we sort of stay away from any sort of teaching in the Bible. And there's a lot where where God's blessing seems to come directly from obedience, and God's curse seems to be correlated with disobedience. And if you do that, you might as well throw away the entire Bible. But, but it's right there. He says, I struck you. And the question is, why did He do that? Why, why did He give hail, blight, and mildew? Why did God diminish their crops? Why did God literally cut half of their barley? Why did God cut the wine? And the answer is verse 17. I struck you, and the reason is, I wanted you to turn to me. But did they? No. I struck you, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. This is where Haggai comes and says, consider your ways. Because things don't get better if you continue to not turn. This becomes worse. Because God loves you too much. This is very important for us to understand. God loved the Israelites too much to allow His people to stay in a sort of of worshipless, lukewarm position. And today, God's hand of discipline works the exact same way. God hasn't changed, neither has He diminished His love for His people. He's jealous for you. And when God disciplines us, like Haggai has said, I'm going to say to you, if you receive God's discipline, then consider your ways. Consider. He's doing it so that you would turn. Do not be stubborn and continue to not turn. Things usually get harder and harsher when we do not repent because God is unrelenting in His love for His people. Unbelievers, in fact, He'll let them prosper so that He can harden their heart. But believers, things will get worse. He is unrelenting in His love for you until you finally relinquish your idol, and come back and make Him first. An example of this in the New Testament, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. God did this to the, first Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian Christians, for you know what? For not taking worship seriously. How important is what we do here on Sunday? 
infinitely important. You want to see how? They were not taking worship seriously, specifically the Lord's Supper part of the worship. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And there you see the causation again. You're not taking worship properly. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Same God, same operative ways. Okay, so the Corinthian Christians are like, man, why am I sick? Why am I hurting? Why, why am I going through all... And, and, and Paul is just being honest. He said, because you're not, you're not worshiping God right. You're not putting Him first in your life. You're, you're embarrassing your brothers and your sisters when you come in and gather at church. And, and church is not worship. It's, it's, people are getting drunk here. This is a farce. And as we read this text, it's almost as if God is saying something very similar as He did in Haggai. Uh, if I could rephrase it, I, I would just put it like this. And I think there's enough um, word uh, verbiage here for me to do this. It's as if Paul is saying, I made your body weak so that you could repent. Yet you still did not turn back to me. So I made you ill so that you could repent. Yet you did not turn back to me. So finally, I took your life so that the rest of the church could learn a lesson from your life. Wow, that's tough. And that's the New Testament, folks. Don't let anyone tell you that God is different in the Old and New Testament. Do you think, do you think this is harsh? Is this isolated? You guys all remember Ananias and Sapphira? Let's turn to Acts chapter 5. Here's what it says. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Because they lied to God. It's what goes on in church all the time. Right? I mean, a modern equivalent would be like, Oh yeah, I gave my tithe, and it's not 10% of your gross. You're, you're, you're cutting off, you're pay, taking off, and keeping some of it for yourself, and you're lying. Right? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they, carry, they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and what was the result of both of their deaths? Listen to verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. If you won't learn your lesson, I'm bringing you home. I'm letting the others learn a lesson through your death. Whew, this is tough. Hebrews 12.6 For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Uh, if I'm a believer, and I know I'm living in sin, and I'm not experiencing any discipline from God, I would worry. You should too. If you're currently living in sin, and you're not experiencing any discipline from God, you should worry. Why? Because every true son, every genuinely saved person, God disciplines when they sin. That's what Hebrews is saying. Now sometimes calamities do not not occur because of sin. All we have to do is look at the book of Job. Job was a righteous man. The entire book is about a man who was righteous and received all sorts of maladies, and it was not due to his sin. 
but clearly, as I have shown you from today's text, as both in the Old and New Testament, especially in the book of Haggai today, clearly, sometimes, calamities occur as acts of divine discipline. Amen? That's a tough thing to say amen to. I know. But that's what the text is saying. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. You know, whenever calamities occur, here's what I urge you to do. Go into some prayerful introspection. Don't just say, oh, you know, pff, that, 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 that just happenstance. Whenever calamities occur, consider your ways. Go into time of prayer or introspection and say, God, is there, is there any sin in my Holy Spirit? Please, please show me where I am sinning. Is this your hand of discipline? And sometimes you might have to just repent. Don't be stubborn. Don't be proud. If God, is, if God reveals to you that it is a form of discipline, then please, I urge you, repent. Oh, but that cancer could have happened to anyone. That job loss or that relational breakage or whatever it is. I want you to think about that. Even car accidents. It could be nothing. It could be a form of discipline. God controls every atom in this universe. Repent if there's any sin to repent of. And if you, after prayer, and I would say even godly counsel, because how often do we know that our hearts are so wicked that we know we're living in sin, but we rationalize it, and then we don't see it, but we ask a godly person, and a godly person is able to say, yeah, I... That area of your life, you need some repentance there. It's helpful to confer with another godly person. But after all that is done, and, and other people don't see anything, you don't see anything, and you're, you're waiting before the Lord, and the Lord says, there, there's no sin in your life, then at that point, patiently endure the sanctifying hand of Almighty God. It's not discipline, but God's doing it for the strengthening of your soul. Patiently endure the sanctifying hand of Almighty God. Nothing is ever wasted, and He does everything because He loves you. So in those types of situations, be patient. Be patient. I was reading that story this past week of a pastor who went through many different calamities, one after another. And then even months later, he asked himself, God, is there any sin in his life? He just applied the same principles that I just taught you today. And the Lord, not in an audible voice, and he was clear to write that. He said, not in any audible voice. But in a sense that, that, that he was so certain, however, that night, the Lord said, there, there isn't any sin in your life. And I'm doing it for X, Y, and Z reason. And he just began to weep. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Stay strong. I'm developing you. Don't turn against me. And we have to learn these things because God will, his, his, God's ultimate goal in life is not your comfort. It's your sanctification. He wants you to become Christ-like, not comfortable. Alright? Sometimes it comes with comfort. Many times it comes with difficulty. But the ultimate goal for God's, of God in your life is Christ-likeness.
Okay? If he's, he'll do it sometimes with blessings, and other times he'll do it with difficulties. Blessed be the name of the Lord in both. Amen? Amen. Principle number four. Success in life begins when we put God first. If you were carefully taking notes, this was a principle I gave about two weeks ago. It reemerges here. And I want to say something here because let's get the text back up from Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Um, what, what we see here, as we get to verses 18 and 19, let's start and go down. And let's go down to verse uh, uh, 15. Now consider from this day onward. Why this day onward? I opened up the sermon by telling you this is about two months from last week's sermon, and then last week's sermon was about two months prior to that. This day onward is very important. When you read Scripture, you want to underline this, because this means that people have now begun work on the uh, temple of the Lord, and and they have now put God first in their lives. There was a drastic shift. They're they're no longer living for their own comfort, their own businesses, their own pleasures. They're putting God first. They're working on the house of God. So verse 15 is a turning point. Now consider from this day onward. Forget the past. Because in the past, you were doing some messed up stuff. You weren't putting me first. From this day onward, from the day that you've made me first in your life, now continue, before stone was placed, okay, um, um, in the temple of the Lord. In other words, before you actually began rebuilding the house of God, how did you fare? And then he ta- talks about the past again, and go down to verse 18. Now, he reminds them of the past, and then he comes back to what? This day onward, in verse 18. Continue. And he actually specifically reminds them, the 24th day of the ninth month, since that day, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. You know why God's doing this? He doesn't want you to think that this is accidental. He wants you to clearly see causation. Just as you were cursed for neglecting me, I want you to be clear on this. And it ends with verse 19. I will bless you. This blessing comes on the 24th day of the ninth month. Why is God being so so specific? The answer is because that was the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. He wants you to see causation. Just as your cursing came because you failed to put me first, your blessing is coming because you have put me first. There is a direct correlation. Things have changed. Now people have put God first in their lives. And he's saying this, although you don't see anything on the vine yet or the fig tree because it takes time for things to grow. Take heart. I love this. I love this because it takes faith, right? God is saying, take heart. Just as by faith you have now put me first, by faith believe that though you don't see anything on the vines, because you have put me first and now you have laid the foundation of my temple, read verse 19. But from this day on, again this day, the day of repentance and recommitment to God, on this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. Now clearly, 
God's temple no longer exists. So if, if you're so literal into thinking, well, how does that look for me because I don't have a temple to lay a, help lay the foundation for or give my money to help the building for. So what do I do with this text? What do verses 18 and 19 look like for me today? Because I, I understand the cursing and those are really strong warnings of discipline. But now we come to 18 and 19 and I want God's blessing upon my life. I want that. So how does it look for me? Does it mean that when we put God first, we will always receive physical, material blessings? No, it doesn't. And if I said yes, that would be prosperity gospel. No, it does not. We all know that sometimes, many times, Christians are martyred, they're imprisoned, or even killed for the sake of Jesus. But it does mean that If we put God first, then God will be with us. Heaven will be our final home. Jesus will be our guide, our Savior, Emmanuel, God literally living inside of us. And also generally speaking, God will also physically bless us with materials, health, and all that we physically need to do His work. Paul says, He who gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater will bless and multiply your increase so that you may give even more for the advance of His righteousness. He's talking about finances there. There is, generally speaking both in in individuals, in families, and even on societies, that when the gospel begins to pervade in uh, a society, you generally see an economic uplifting as well. Not all the time. But generally speaking, generally speaking, if you put God first, God will bless your work. This past week, uh, on Friday, I... Friday's supposed to be my day off. I, I'm still usually here, but I, I worked part of the day and then I took my family out. Uh, my boys, my girls are at school. And uh, we went to Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A opened up another location on 47th. It's like literally just 10 blocks from their old location. And we're thinking, why in the world do they open two locations so close? And I told my wife, look, they're not dumb people. They're probably very lucrative. So we went there, and the line was around the building. And I'm thinking to myself, man, it's hard for me. And I don't know, unbelievers will mock me when I say it. That's God blessing them. That was a business founded by Kathy Truitt, a, a, a very strong Southern Baptist man who closed the store on Sundays so that everyone had the opportunity to go worship. Even if they were unbelievers, they would have the day off, but believers had the opportunity to worship God. They lost... They, and, and, and fast foods, uh, they, they do 20% of their, all, all their receipts on Sunday. They were willing to lose that so that they could put God first and worship God, close down church uh, uh, business on Sunday. And, and now, uh, they're the number two behind McDonald's. And the only reason why McDonald's grosses more in receipts is because they have more locations. I just, I, I, you know, I, I, everywhere I go... I see lines for that store. I, I really see it as the blessing of God. Does that always happen? 
You know, you, you think it to yourself, if I open a business and I close on Sundays and, and I put God first, God's, God's going to put lines around the corner. No, it doesn't always happen. But I want to say, generally speaking, God does bless you. He blesses your family. He blesses your kids. Um, I, I, I know just personally, some of the most brightest uh, kids that I know, either growing up and even now, are, are, are children of, of, uh, of parents who love the Lord and put God first. Um, academically in all areas and, and many times. Does that mean that there aren't any kids straying? No, you do see that sometimes. But generally speaking, they're some of the most blessed kids. Someone actually did a study on Jonathan Edwards' line. And, uh, and, and then they try to say it was due to eugenics. And I say, no, it's just a blessing of God on faithful generations. This is true, but it takes faith to see this. Because without faith, you will open on Sundays. You will put yourself first. You will strive after money. You will say things like, who puts food on the table? Not God, it's me. If I don't work, how are we going to eat? You say things like that. Put God first. So as I close now, remember what I said earlier? I said, I recognize a sermon like today's could easily be forgotten by tomorrow. So in closing, I want you to personally think about ways that you could practically demonstrate God to be first in your life. And in order to help you, I'm going to give you seven that I thought of while preparing the sermon. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, Pastor Steve, uh, I see the text, you've exposited it, that's right on. I want to apply those principles in my life. How? Because the last thing I want you to do is hear a sermon like this, and then tomorrow you're just back to living for yourself. That's a complete waste. I want you to put God first. I want you to put Christ first. I want you to be able to say like Augustine, Christ is not valued at all unless Christ is valued above all. Let that be the banner of your life. So how could you do it? Now, if I give you a list of seven, in some circles, people will say, oh, Pastor Stevens being legalistic. Legalism is a person trying to earn their salvation through works. That's not what this is. This is someone treasuring Jesus above all and taking practical steps to demonstrate that condition of the heart. Okay? That's what this is. Tip number one. Wake up an hour early each day to pray and read God's Word. It's a great way to visibly demonstrate God to be first in your life. Your most important appointment tomorrow is the one that you have with God. Give God the best and first part of your day. It's like you saying, God... Even if I lose an hour of sleep, you're worth it. You don't have to lose an hour of sleep, by the way. What do you have to do? You just go to sleep earlier. But, but you're so worth it that I want to get up early to give you the best and first part of my day. Jesus often did that himself before the sun came up. Well, if the Son of God is doing it, how much more should we need to do it? And I want to just say this. By not praying... It's as if you're going to go through the rest of the day. You're, you're thinking, well, I pray at the end of the day. I don't get that kind of logic. Do you really believe that 
without God's presence through prayer throughout your day in your life, you're going to make your day better on your own than if you had spent that time with God, asking for His strength and laying out your day before God. Don't you think that would lead to a better day for you with less frustrations? Or do you not believe in the power of prayer? If prayer is really all that we say it is, and God is really who He is, then we will get up and we will pray, because we can't afford not to pray. Amen? Amen. Second, come to church on time for worship and dress well for God. Oh, and some people are like, oh, that's legalism. Let me just explain this for a moment. I was speaking with somebody this past week who, uh, who said, you know, uh, that this person told me that, you know, when they started off going to church, uh, it, 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 he used to dress like me. You know, the, the shirt, the tie, and all that kind of stuff. But after time, you know, now it's sort of casual. All right? And I'm not here to condemn you, especially if you're dressed casually today. You didn't know I was going to preach on this, whatever. I'm not here to condemn you, so please um, don't write me any hate mail afterwards. Just hear what I have to say, okay? Um, What I'm simply saying is this. This is what I told that person. I said this. In my mind, the reason why I dress up like this, I mean, I'm not comfortable today. It's hot and humid outside. But why do I do this? The reason why I do it is because if, if, if I was going to meet, for example, the President of the United States, I, would make, I wouldn't show up in shorts and a tank top. I would make sure that I'm dressed appropriately to meet a man of high position. Well, you don't get any higher than God. If, 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 if my boss at work is worthy of a shirt and tie, then God is infinitely more worthy than that. If I dress up to make a good impression on a date, then God is far more valuable than my date. And He's worth the time. It takes more time and money and effort and ironing to get ready, but there are practical ways. In other words, I like the way, I remember um, one pastor said it this way. He said, um, in the way that I dress, I show the immense treasurable worthiness of God. That's what I want to do. That God is worthy. But in our culture today, it's backwards. It's, it's we dress our best for work Monday through Friday, and then church is sort of our time to sl- like loosen or slack off. And I think we got our priorities wrong. In, in, if you read the book of Malachi, for example, God asks Malachi, and through Malachi, tells the priests, go bring this to your governor, that this kind of blemished offering. See, if he would accept it. I am far more honorable than your governor. Go read the book yourself. So I want you to think about it. I don't put dress codes in church because I think this is a matter of liberty and conscience. And by the way, I know, a shirt and tie is not Sunday's best in, say, uh, the rainforest of, of uh, Brazil. Okay? Uh, their best clothing is going to look very different than our best. But, but here's what I have to say. Whatever your social context is, take the best of that context, which in our culture, in America, in Western culture, is a shirt and tie. And give that to God the way you would someone of high position. 
I would say, more than someone of high position. Um, timeliness is important. Uh, the, the worship leader practices hard. If you come in just to hear the sermon, it's almost as if you're saying to the worship leader, well, yeah, you're important, I recognize that, but, but not that important. And I, I would agree that the sermon is the most important part of the worship, but so is, so is coming in even before worship begins to have a prayerful attitude to begin with the worship of God. Timeliness is important. Number three, evangelize. One clear way of seeking first the kingdom of God is doing the activity that builds it. Right? We could talk a lot about putting first the kingdom of God, but if we are not evangelizing, how in the world are we putting God's kingdom first? I I don't think I need to go in too much on this one. Um, Evangelism is the activity by which God's kingdom is built. So it, it is absolutely explicit that without evangelism, you're not putting His kingdom first. Number four, financially give. Does your checkbook demonstrate that you put God first in your life, or does your checkbook demonstrate your desires, your ambitions, and your comforts? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. Matthew 6.21 Do you spend more on your car than you give for the causes of Christ? So I'm going to put it this way. If someone were to arrest you and put you in court, on trial for being a Christian, could they find enough evidence in your checkbook to prove you guilty? In other words, does your spending pattern show that you put God first? Jesus said it. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Um, When you have discretionary income, a great way to think about this, I said this on Friday night, uh, I remember one of you guys brought it up at the members meeting, and you're already thinking about it, and I, I want to exhort you and uh, really encourage you on that. Think about ways to give. All right, Instead of using discretionary income to go on another vacation, think about funding a Bible translation work, and I guarantee you the investment on that will be worthwhile. Or another alternative is take a missions trip yourself with that money. Now make your vacation into a missions trip. Five, serve the body of Christ. Haggai and his people had to rebuild the temple of God in order to demonstrate their love for God. God expects the same for us. They could say all they want, we love God, we love God. But as long as the temple lay in ruins, God didn't accept anything. Paul informs us that God's temple in the New Testament era is the local church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The word you there in Greek is plural. It's a reference to the entire body of Christ. You do not, you cannot, I think, show any more love for God than when you serve His bride. Time, energy, studies, mentoring, fellowship for the body of Christ is how you put God first. That's how you do it. It's a practical way of doing it. If you're one of those type of people that really don't, like, you keep church to a minimum, 
it's 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 going to be very hard for you to be, wake up one one day and say I put God first. Number six. Check to see if you believe in the gospel each and every single day. Why? Because faith without works is dead, but works without faith is legalism. Like if you're doing all of these things without any faith in Christ, if you come in to dress on well, on you come in dressed well, you come to church on time, you financially give, you do all of those things, but you have no faith in Christ, you're no different than a Pharisee. You're headed to hell. What is the gospel? An infinitely holy God loves you. But He must also send every sinner to hell because He is a God of justice. But God loved you so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, and He died on the cross for your sins. And three days later, after dying on the cross for your sins, Jesus Christ historically resurrected from the grave. That if you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, God, and Savior, you will have eternal life. And the moment you believe in this gospel, you are saved. And it's not even about the moment, though it is, if you know what I mean. It's about every day. Ask yourself today, right now, do you believe in the gospel? as, As you're sitting here today, do you believe in the gospel Brothers and sisters, I, you know, there's nothing more important that came out of my mouth today than what I just said. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe in Jesus? Check to see if you believe. And number seven, fast. I'm not going to go in too deep on this because in Bible study we're going to go into the introductory chapter of, of the book on fasting. Um, I went through that book and it, it just blessed me so 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 much. Uh, fasting is important, and it's one way we show that God is first in our lives. Let me read to you what it says in uh, uh, fasting in the New Testament of biblical theology: the weakness of hunger, which leads to death, brings forth the goodness and power of God, who wills life. Here, there is no extortion, no magic attempt to force God's will. We merely look with confidence upon our Heavenly Father and through our fasting say gently in our hearts, Father, without you I will die. Come to my assistance. Make haste to help me. Nothing else shows, I think, in a more powerful way. Of course, it's a personal way because when you're fasting, you're not going to let others know you're fasting, right? Jesus said not to. So you're going to go, and everybody else is going to think it's a normal day for you, but internally, you're depriving yourself of the very substance, uh, substance that gives you biological life. And it's in, in that deprivation, you're saying, every time that hunger pang, when you're fasting, every time you feel that hunger pang, you, you pray and you say, God, I love and I need you more than food than life itself. Man, I mean, that's a powerful way of putting God first. It's a powerful way of putting God first. Um, fasting also, you could fast of things that uh, no, you normally work with. Uh, you know, if it's, if, 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 it's, uh, if it's a computer that you normally work with, or if it's TV that you normally watch, these are things that you could give up 
to spend some time with God. Fasting doesn't merely have to be only food. But in that deprivation, it pulls you back to God. So in all these ways and more, brothers and sisters, let us put God at the very center of our lives. For therein we shall be blessed from this day forward. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.